Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. My name is Stuart Foley, and I'm your host. And I'm going to be joined today by Phil Dower of Grandview Analytics. And we're going to be talking about five investment data challenges for insurers. Phil, welcome. Thanks for being on. Glad to be here. How you doing? Great. It's nice to see you. We are both in the Chicagoland area, so we're both looking out at some kind of halfway decent skies today. Before we get going too far, and you've listened to a couple of our podcasts, I think you actually said you subjected your family to some, which is, <laughs> I don't, it's cruel and unusual. But nevertheless, what's your hometown, your first job of any kind, and a fun fact? Sure. Hometown, well, I was born in Skokie, Illinois, but I grew up in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. Oh, wow. Beautiful. And my first job was as a paper delivery boy, six mornings a week for numerous years through the, the sun, the sleet, the hail, the snow. Character building. Very much character building, or at least that's what my parents kept telling me. <laughs> um, fun fact, I've been through quite a few hobbies in my life. One of those about a decade ago was uh, I moved to the Florida Keys for a while and I took up spearfishing. Um, I got certified as a free diver uh, and I started swimming around and shooting fish. Uh, never got very good at it, but uh, it's quite a bit of fun. Very cool. So before we get going too far, Grandview Analytics, based in Chicago, Illinois, close to where we are, tell us a little bit about Grandview, your focus on the insurance industry, but give our audience just a little bit of background before we get into these specific data challenges that you have solutions for. Sure. So uh, Grandview Analytics has been around for about eight years now. It was formed with a focus on providing the kind of combination of business and technology expertise that's needed to solve modern data and technology problems. So we work with um, strictly financial services firms with a strong focus on insurers. We're brought in to help with things like system implementations or integrations, data warehousing. A lot of that takes the form of, you know, moving data to the cloud these days. I've been on a couple of Snowflake projects of late. We have consulting expertise across everything, you know, front to back office. And the key differentiator for us that we like to say is, you know, everyone on our consulting staff, at least, has you know at least a decade of experience in the industry. They're all well-versed in the business of an insurer or an asset manager, while also possessing some very strong technical skills with data. And then we also, so that's the consulting side of the business, we also have a, a managed data offering on the technology side of the business that is strongly suited to insurers as well. And this is an offering that helps to, to manage, clean, report your data called Rivet. That's cool. And so let's get into it right away here, because if you've managed money for insurance companies or been a CIO for at least five minutes, you've run into all five of these and I want to get I want to get at it. So the first one we're going to talk about is the data rules between the investment book of record and the accounting book of record, affectionately known as IBOR and ABOR. How are you addressing those challenges? Well, there's numerous challenges there. So we can focus on a couple. And there's obviously esoteric 
there's an esoteric nature to this for, for each individual client, depending on which systems you're running on, what, what your data flows look like, what your platform is, et cetera. But there are a couple of kind of high level generalizations that, that we can draw from all that. First is that in insurance more than other asset management, it certainly seems that accounting information is very important for, for everyone and straight up to the front office. So getting CIOs and portfolio managers information from, so they're typically interacting with their IBOR system. That's their daily workflow, looking at their analytics, looking at their trades, all that stuff. But for them to make informed investment decisions, that IBOR data needs to be enriched with information from accounting. And if you think about insurance, a lot of that takes the form of book data, you know, your book prices, your book yields, that kind of thing, you know, broken out into tax lots where possible. The places where this becomes difficult is where, you know, the granularity of the data, for example, might not be the same, where in your accounting system, you're almost always, or you're gonna always have tax lot granularity across all your positions. But in your IBOR system, depending on how that's been implemented or maybe some legacy challenges, you may not have the same kind of granularity there. So there's some transformation of this data required to properly move it from accounting to IBOR. So that's one thing we come across. And where that comes into play, Phil, I mean, for me is, I've managed a zillion insurance clients and the gain loss constraints, right? That's something that, you know, is kind of straight down the middle of the fairway for insurance companies is like, they've got to know that information and that sometimes is not in the eyebore. So, I mean, I think that's a great example, a specific example of, ex of exactly what you're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely true. The whole, you know, don't sell anything at a loss type paradigm, right? Which is, you know, specific to an insurer where like, you know, a hedge fund or an asset manager or something like that might not have the same kind of constraints and maybe even just less worried about, you know, tax lots in general. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And the the other thing that, that happens in this kind of integration of these two systems is that oftentimes there's overlapping data points where, you know, your accounting system may provide a duration, for example, for an asset um, that's based off of a series of cash flows that the accounting system sees for that asset. Your IBOR may be doing the same thing and they may be getting different answers. So that establishes a situation where you kind of have to build a hierarchy and to establish what, you know, this is the source of truth. So you have to look across those overlapping data elements and figure out where is our true source what are the limits at which we evaluate that? And how do we surface that as the one true answer in the end? That's very common problem, very common, uh, not just in the integration of ABOR and IBOR, but the confluence of any data sets really where you have overlapping stuff and, and you know, a common data warehousing type practice. You know, where I see that applied is in structured securities, right? That have in anything with optionality where your IBOR is running some kind of an OAS model and, and coming up with an option, an OAD, an option adjusted duration, where your accounting system may not be doing that, right? So that's, I mean, to me, as an XPM, I mean, that's where my mind goes when you're talking about those kinds of issues. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. And so what about a lot of insurance companies? Outsourcing is a huge trend and has been for quite some time. That means that you're going to have external managers. Sometimes there's internal managers 
and external managers. Sometimes it's all outsourced. But now you've got sources of data from different places, different data feeds and so forth. What are some of the common issues around external managers and the data challenges that that presents? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the people in your community are familiar with this one as well. The whole you know use of external managers has definitely been on the rise. Well, there's, there's a lot of things that could happen there. So when you think about the general overall flow of data in your system, right, you're going to have data arriving from external parties that is going to, number one, arrive in different formats. Number two, arrive at different times. And number three, potentially be different uh, pertinent to different parts of your portfolio. And you have to find a way to integrate all that stuff into one holistic view. So there are a couple best practices here that I think insurers should be mindful of. One, you it's imperative that there be a centralized, what, what I just will generally call a hub for this. There needs to be one place where all this data comes together that can handle all the different formats and all the different timing of this to move the data further on through your system. What you're going to find is that some of the same concepts we just discussed will also be applicable here, where, for example, there's a lot of private debt and private assets in general in insurance portfolios these days. And since those private assets don't always have some sort of common market identifier, they could be identified in different ways in different systems by different managers. But it's going to be imperative that if you're receiving these trades or these positions from an external manager, that you know that a certain identifier there is actually the same thing as a different identifier that you have in your own portfolio and in your own in-house systems. And that's where some sort of mastering hub that sits between all that external data and your internal data plays a pivotal role. You don't want to see two positions. You want to see one position, right? So that's a good example of where that, that happens. And if you think a little further about this, I was thinking about this earlier today that what insurers deal with when they're going to these external managers and they're doing their external manager selection is, you know, what is the asset class we're interested in? Where does the expertise exist? And which managers are going to, or who in selling this to me are going to best portray that they can provide either, you know, the tightest tracking to a benchmark or the highest alpha or something like that. And those are always going to be concerns that are paramount to most any sort of data concern. But I would think that, you know, maybe there's an opportunity there for some of these people who do do the external management to differentiate themselves by also providing standardized sets of data that are deliverable at SL according to SLAs and are holistic and are robust that can facilitate the insurer's use of that in a more um, streamlined manner. Anyway, I thought I had I thought I had this morning that some of your listeners might be might find interesting. Absolutely, it's it's very relevant, right? So, the third topic here this came up at our symposium, and I didn't appreciate how challenging it is, and that is that insurance companies have have broadened with a protracted yield and low yield environment the variety of asset classes that insurers own today is vastly broader than it used to be and that includes alternatives and private asset classes and that creates some challenges and so 
With regard to alternative investments, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you're seeing there and how you're addressing them? Sure. And you're absolutely right. I mean, anybody that has paid any attention to insurance over the past couple of decades has noticed the same trend. And you look at the portfolios now, there's lots of private assets in there that take the form of you know, infrastructure or private credit or PE funds or something like that, right? These all have a lot of idiosyncratic type attributes about them. Your standard IBOR systems, and let's just focus on the IBOR piece maybe, it are not suited to, to handle all of those data points. So there's a lot of, let's call it bolt-on systems or additional systems within an insurer's investment division to handle that. And this is things like you know capital commitments and drawdowns and all that stuff that comes with some of these alternatives. And all that is necessary, but unfortunately it doesn't relieve the need to also track these things in your primary IBOR, right? So and, and when you're doing that, some of the big concerns are, are the following, like, how do you model these? You know, you want to accurately represent the risk on these investments. So if you think about something like a PE fund with multiple investments, like what is the underlying risk there? How are you going to track to that? How are you going to represent that in your portfolio? In many ways, you're going to have to proxy it. What are the cash flows on some, maybe like you mentioned structured products or like a private structured product? You know, how do you keep those up to date to ensure that your analytics are representative or what you tr- of what you truly think these future cash flows or lack thereof may look like, like default assumptions and stuff. So you'll notice that there's also been a trend or maybe the start of a trend in the industry where some of these big legacy enterprise systems have, have started to realize this as being a real kind of pain point for um, asset managers, and they've started to consolidate. And there's a lot of talk of front-to-back systems, multi-asset systems. There is progress being made. I don't think that we're anywhere near the end of that, but yet it certainly represents a challenge and not just an upfront challenge. A lot of that has to do with ongoing vigilance and diligence to maintain a proper data environment to facilitate the proper outputs. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely believe that the need, there's a lot, I mean, and it's not always small firms. I mean, large firms have these legacy issues too, right? I mean, they've, they've got, there's been firms being combined and there's M&A going on and, and consolidating all that together is easier said than done. And I mean, absolutely. one of the things that I remember this in an economics class, money and banking, I think 500 years ago when I was in college, that the professor said, you know, insurance companies and banks manage their assets versus their liabilities. And I dutifully took that note down in my notebook. But the reality of doing that is a real challenge. Insurance companies' investment portfolios are unique in that they reside inside the belly of an operating insurance enterprise. And while the concepts of risk in investments and on the liability book have a lot of commonality in concept, the vocabulary is completely different, right? So the idea that the duration of the liability, for example, and we had a podcast with Rip Reeves at Aegis who talked about that being the starting point for the riskless position of a bond portfolio, it's not easy to do, right? Again, easier said than done. Can you talk about a little bit around asset liability integration 
and ways that you're solving that challenge? Yeah, I can speak a little bit to it. I mean, I'm no actuarial scientist here, but there are, what you're getting at is absolutely true, right? One key data point would be, you know, your key rate durations, right? And this year, more than any other in recent history, people have probably been keeping an eye on this stuff, right? With our elevating rate environment. When you're thinking about the data necessary for this, a lot of what you'll find if you want to get your the best guess or the best accuracy you can out of these matching type analyses is that you have to ensure that you're using the same central library of data across all of your systems to do this analysis. So typically, you know, we don't work a ton with the, the actuarial side, the liability side, but what we've seen is that on the that there's people responsible in the organization for that liability side that are also taking in information about the investments and they're doing the actual matching but sometimes the information they're taking in for those investments to do it may not be the same as what a portfolio manager is seeing so what you have in your eyebor and the analytics that is generating may be different than what this matching analysis is showing. And it's because you may not have a standard library of cash flows. Going back to our conversation about the privates, that's a key key pain point there. Is that like these privates, the cash flows for those are not managed in a central location and they don't flow through the organization in a, in a seamless manner. And if you're dealing with that, and then your iBoard is a separate system from whatever other system you're using to do this kind of matching. So you could be dealing with basically different foundations of data and you're getting different answers and people are in, you know, your, your portfolio managers operating in a way that, you know, your actuarial department may think is unwise simply because looking at different numbers. What ends up happening is if your actuarial department is using investment cash flows that don't match to what the IBOR is housing, which is common, it's totally possible that that's happening, that you're working off of different assumptions and your ability to match to those liabilities, or at least your reporting on it, is going to diverge. Yeah, I mean, and the thing that comes to my mind is, again, the option adjusted duration around residential mortgages, for example, that when rates have gone up and those are very negatively convex instruments and they've extended dramatically, and then is that captured by the actuarial team in their cash flow testing, for example. And that's, it hasn't been as big a deal, but when you see this kind of extreme rate move that happened in 2022, you know, I think a lot of people are, as you mentioned earlier, looking at key rate durations and really trying to figure out where those differences lie, right? It's important. Right. And the last thing I guess that I'd touch on here is, you know, chief investment officers, and, and I have been fortunate to have a lot of CIOs as friends and it's a very challenging job and a very challenging environment. And, and the people who write or approve investment policies often don't appreciate how challenging it is to monitor compliance. There are ratings, upgrades, downgrades, duration extensions, contractions, all sorts of things that happen on any given day in the investment world that create compliance violations, some right. small, some large, but managing 
in taking in oversight, governance, and overseeing that investment policy statement is a monumental task in the complex and diverse portfolios being run by insurance companies today. Can you talk a little bit about compliance validation and how you're addressing that? Yes, I can. And I completely agree with you. Compliance definitely represents a pain point for insurers for many reasons. Number one, you, you have, uh, well, let's first talk about compliance in general. There's a couple different ways compliance can be termed, right? Like a lot of time we think about pre-trade compliance and then we think of like overnight compliance. And, we're, and from a data perspective, that's probably suitable. There is a third variation potentially, which is more like trading controls and you know who has the reins for certain assets or the ability to trade things, which just puts forth yet another level of complexity to this. But let's focus on the first two. In insurers, right, you, a lot of insurers are operating in multiple jurisdictions, right? And most jurisdictions, when we think of the U.S., take the form of states, and each state has their own set of regulations. Those regulations may use similar terms, but those terms may be defined differently. They could use different measures of capital or different measures to define certain aggregations. All that stuff has to be encoded in some manner to be captured within the insurer's investments. On top of that, most of that encoding takes place within your IBOR system in many cases. And also in many cases, that encoding is done in a bit of a proprietary language of the platform itself. So it's not easily shareable with the rest of your data ecosystem. So that's just a couple of them, but, but there are more. I mean, compliance you know, is something that you want to track as granularly as possible, right? You want to know not only do you want to know what you knew, you also want to know when you knew it, right? Like you were getting at that, like you can be per in perfect compliance and through no fault of your own, the market changes, downgrades happen, something like that. And you're, all of a sudden you have a violation, right? So you want to be able to separate those things that are, you know, based on decision-making, you know, like your pre-trade stuff, like we were saying, to those things that just kind of like happen in the market. So you need a robust data organization to do that. And you need your data elements clearly de defined centrally for all those calculations that you can't have someone using a, cal a capital calculation somewhere that's different than what somebody else is using for the same regulation. All that stuff kind of needs to be, once again, mastered and, and centralized in, in a governance framework. And the other thing that we come across at Grandview a lot with compliance is that oftentimes, and in, in almost all cases, compliance is really exception-based. So it really only raises its head when something you know out of whack shows up, be it in pre-trade or overnight or something like that. But it's also kind of imperative that for every one of your transactions, every one of your trades, that you have some audit trail to say that at the time that we did this, there was no violations. These were the outputs of all the compliance checks. They were all within you know, allowable ranges. And that does end up being a pain point for people when they need to go back and provide some sort of audit to say, show us your trades and that you followed your proper you know, um, compliance procedures. That's often kind of a, a blank or a blind spot. Yeah. And I think you've got, I mean, boards of directors and investment committees are relying on the investment team to tell them, yes, we're in compliance. 
But that's challenging. I mean, right, we've talked about that when you've got the kind of market declines that you've seen this year, just outright declines in, in asset classes, in equities and, and core fixed income, that changes the denominator fairly right. significantly that can create some compliance issues with regard to issuer concentrations. You know, what's commonly known as room and a name, to your point about pre-trade compliance. So, you know, a huge deal and terrific that you, I mean, you, you've outlined just to kind of recap, you know, data rules around IBOR and ABOR, challenges around external managers, the data, the timing, and, and the integration, the challenges around alternative investments and private investments. We've talked about that. Asset liability integration, and then last but certainly not least, compliance validation. So five great topics, and thanks very much for going over those. So Phil, on top of those five, what didn't we cover? There's so much. I mean, in the data universe, there's just so much. Off the top of my head, we didn't really talk about capital calculations in terms of like your, your RBCs or anything like that. We didn't talk specifically about things like NAIC ratings, CECL. We didn't touch on that. And, and I mean, you know, top of mind for a lot of people, ESG. And ESG is, you know, its own unique kind of data set. Not every organization has really figured out how to integrate that into their, their deal pipeline, their, their trading, their compliance, like we just talked about. It's really a pain point. And, you know, we didn't touch on it today. It could probably, probably be a whole other podcast. Absolutely. We will do it. I will say this. You've helped me, you know, kind of walk through a lot of these issues and bring up a lot of things that I've dealt with earlier in my career. When I talk with you, and I, I think you know this, I taught as a professor for a number of years, and I've always got people who are early in their career in my head. And I would be surprised if if when you graduated from school that you had thought, well, I'm going to be a senior director at Grandview Analytics working on insurance data problems, right? So I'm thinking that this is maybe wasn't on your radar screen at that point. As you look out today with the vast data challenges that are sure to be more complex going forward, right? What would you tell your 21-year-old self? What advice would you give that person? It's a good question. I think probably two things. One, maybe for someone like yourself, you know, you've spent a career in this industry too. Relationships are critical, just absolutely critical. You'll see the same faces in different places throughout your career. You know, as big as this industry seems, it's actually quite small in the end. It's very um, small. So relationships are, are critical. And the other thing that I think has benefited myself that I would give advice to anyone is that intellectual curiosity, just learning for the sake of learning knowledge is so important. Just take it upon yourself to, to learn and to teach yourself things and to read and to challenge yourself. And it's, uh, that's how you grow, right? That's great advice and a great education. Thanks for being on. Phil Dower, Senior Director, Grandview Analytics. Phil, thanks, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please shoot me a note at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. Mm -hmm.